What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, sponsored by peer-run support communities Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to our new broadcast station, KBOO, in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, today, my guest is Erica Vandenacker. She's calling us from the Netherlands. Erica is a social psychiatric uh, caretaker. Um, she's a member of the Hearing Voices Network internationally. And uh, Erica works in forensic criminal psychiatric settings. She works with people who hear voices, and the voices are involved in their criminal behavior, including violent voices. So we're going to be talking about the connection between voices and violence. Erica, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you for inviting me. It was really wonderful meeting you at the recent Hearing Voices Congress in uh, Holland and hearing about your work with people who are considered sort of the most scary mental health um, issues in society, which are people who hear voices and the voices are telling them violent things to kill people or hurt people or commit crimes. And you have a very different perspective on these issues, and I'm really interested in having you on the show. And can you tell us about how you got started with a different perspective on voice hearing and mental health issues? I saw that the regular things I learned at school did not work, like medication, like distance, professional distance. It did not work. It, it, it turned my clients into zombies. And, and, and I, I thought, and later, fortunately, it has been proved also that hearing voices or having a mental problem has mostly to do with, with traumas. And then I think I should give my shoulder for them to lean on. So you saw that people were over-medicated and really having this kind of zombie effect and their trauma wasn't being uh, addressed. And, and you say professional distance. Do you mean just sort of not being caring, not being sort of involved in the client's lives and talking about their emotions? Is that it? I have seen that, that there is no room for, for humanity in, in, in treating people with a mental illness and you can't see me, but... I'm putting that between marks because I also think a mental illness, who decides who is mental ill. So this was about 20 years ago. So what kinds of changes did you think are necessary and how did your own perspective sort of evolve away from that traditional uh, way of working with people? Well, I, I, I think it, you mentioned the, the Congress in, in the Netherlands and um, I was talking there about one of my clients and he was supposed to be there. He was asked by the people organizing that, that World Congress for the Hearing Voices already in March 2009 to join and, and talk about his progress and everything. In September and it was on the 15th of September and the 14th of September um, the people who were uh, taking care of him decided he could not go and that was so sad for him because he was so proud that he could talk about hearing voices that it was not a taboo anymore anyway not with me and not with his parents and not for himself and that he made progress in how to deal with hearing voices and he had real bad voices. And then I thought, this has to change. So I'm really interested in hearing this, the story specifically of Justin, but 
maybe we can back up a second and you can just tell us how do you see the whole phenomenon of voices? You mentioned that you're not someone who is a big advocate of uh, medications, but what sort of ways do you work with voices and what kind of perspective do you have on it? I think that voices come from a trauma. I know there has been spent loads and loads of money on finding a gene for schizophrenia because most people who hear voices were diagnosed or are still being diagnosed with that disease also between marks. And I think it's better to spend money on finding out is it not true that most people who do hear voices have a trauma and the way you react on traumas by not being able to talk about it, not being able to express your emotions maybe. So you mean like child abuse in families becomes inheritable, like the inability to talk about it and the sort of taboo and fear that surrounds it does get passed down from generations and trauma and violence in a sense run in families. First, that's, but secondly, also, how vulnerable do you react on, on trauma? I mean, being bullied at school for somebody that can be a trauma. For others, they say, no, no problem. But being bullied at school will be never recognized later as maybe a, a, a basic for later getting the problem of hearing voices. And then how would you work with someone who is experiencing voices and who is diagnosed with schizophrenia, say? I do talk with the clients. We call them in the Netherlands clients, not patients. Fortunately, that might be a little progress already. Um, and secondly, I do also talk with the voices. And of course, I need then my clients because by his mouth, I hear what the voices say because he has to tell me what the voices say in his head. And um, we have good conversations. Like um, uh, sometimes my clients get really, really angry or really afraid because one of the voices says, for example, kill Erica. And they don't want to kill me, but the voices want to kill me. And then I talk with my client, but I also talk with the voices. I try with my client to give the voices name. Um, some voices tell themselves their names. And what I've seen by that, and of course this, this is just in three seconds and it might sound very strange, but voices can talk and communicate with me too, if they trust me. They don't trust me in the beginning. I always warn my clients, beware. In the beginning, your voices will say, kill that bitch, that's a fucking bitch, that's whatever, because they're afraid. The voices are afraid. How do you actually talk with a voice? Does the client become the um, kind of translator and the intermediary with the voice? Yeah, he, I, I ask first the client if he wants that. And then I talk with the client because I can see and, and I, I can notice that the voices are listening. I know that. I can see it by the face of my client, by a smile on a moment which is not appropriate or by a remark which is not appropriate in the conversation. I know that then the voices are talking. Yeah, this is very familiar with my own uh, experience and also some of the clients that I've been working with. There's almost like it's almost like a different personality is living inside of the person. And you can't stop denying that. So sometimes I can, well, sometimes most 
let's say 99%, I can see that, for example, when we're talking about food and my client gives a remark and, and, and smiles in a sense and he's talking, suddenly making a remark about, I'm just saying something, nice girls, then I know one voice is saying something. But that means for me that the voice is listening to our conversation. And then and I invite the voice. And so once the client has themselves agreed to talk with the voice, does the client then tell you what they hear the voice saying and kind of act as a bridge? Yes. He tells me what the voices are saying. And um, also the voices are talking directly to me. Of course, by the, by the mouth of my client, because the voices don't have their own voice. They need my clients. So the client says, I hear the voice saying this, and this is what I, um, this is what they're telling me in the moment. Yeah. And sometimes when the conversation is very good, then the, then my client just says, but I mean, and then I know he's saying already literally what the voice is saying. And why I'm mentioning this, that the voice needs the mouth of my client to speak out to me. That is also maybe good to tell when it comes to the violent behavior, like kill yourself or, in, fortunately, for, I mean, the outside world, of course, not for the people who don't hear voices. Fortunately, most of the things voices say, go kill yourself, go jump in front of a train. When I talk with the voices, then sometimes I say to my client, okay, you sit next to me, and then I talk with the voice and I say, do you want him to jump for the train? then go ahead, you jump. And then suddenly the voices recognize that they need the body of my client to do that. Uh, so you tell the voice to just for itself, the voice to go do what it's saying, but then it realizes that actually it's relating to the client and it's kind of trying to convince the client to do something that it can't really do on its own. Exactly. And so this is a process that really takes a lot of trust working with clients. This is not something that you would necessarily do, say, in the first session. You talk with someone, you build a relationship of trust, and then slowly you get to that point where you can say, hey, let's communicate with your voice. Is that right? Um, I have noticed that there is such a big taboo about talking about hearing voices that in my opinion, most people who do hear voices are already glad that I mention it. So it actually sometimes can happen quite quickly. Yeah. With this boy, it happened. I met him um, on the 8th of November 2008, and all my colleagues knew him already and were afraid of him. And I said, okay, I'll pick him up when he comes to live here again. And I saw the boy and I thought, my God, I could see by his face, the way he looked at me, that he was hallucinating. So I went that same night walking with him and I said, maybe it scares you and maybe I say something you don't like, but I know you hear things in your head that I don't hear. What was it in his face that you could sort of tell that he was hearing voices or, as you say, hallucinating? Well, a lot of people do... Um, um, uh, mix it with autism that they don't look at you but somebody who just hear voices they do look at you but I see um, oh what do I see well of course you have to know people but this boy was hallucinating so much I could see he was not connecting with me so he was sort of distracted like there was another presence in the conversation exactly in a sense. 
as if as if he was with me but waiting all the time for an SMS on his mobile. This is it's a very interesting conversation Erica because it so much connects with my own voice hearing experiences which I've talked about um on the show a little bit and I'm still sort of learning about it and I'm not entirely comfortable to just sort of tell everything that I'm going through of course but there is that sense of distraction that you're with the other person you're you're in sort of the ordinary world but then a part of you is very distracted because you're listening to and interacting with hearing being yelled at by this this exactly. force exactly. that's inside of you and, exactly and you mentioned of course that other professionals other colleagues are, are are terrified this is one of the most i think taboo topics voices that are telling people to be suicidal or to kill other people and so what is the attitude of other professionals it's it's look don't do what you're doing don't talk to the voices in fact isn't there kind of a professional dogma that says if you talk to the voices it'll make things worse or the person will become more upset or more psychotic or they'll decompensate yeah but what i always say to my clients and also say to my colleagues is listen to my clients and i say to my clients too if you feel comfortable with what i'm doing and if your voices feel that too then you are the proof of the fact that i'm right do sometimes the clients say look i don't want to talk to the voices or the voices aren't ready to talk yes of course it's of course it's like when when i get a phone call and i see who's calling and i think no not now it's the same but in the beginning I, I first teach my clients that they are the boss of their minds. So you really respect the choice and the decision of the client to decide yes. whether this is something that's helpful and something that they want to do and you're always checking in with them about how they want to proceed if they do want to talk with the voice or listen to the voice in that moment. Exactly. But at the other hand because as what you told about I work in a forensic setting the voices can get really violent and because of that my client can get violent. Then when I really see that there's something going on and I say okay it might be that you don't want to talk with your voices but I can see that your voices are talking a lot with you and I want to know what they have to tell you. Do you ever sometimes help clients to not listen to their voices to do some of the things that we've talked about on Madness Radio sometimes like distraction techniques or wellness techniques to, to kind of lower the stress that the person is from and Of course like listening music I have one client who find out that one of his voices is very good at making I don't know if you know that in America too sudokus Ah uh, yes like a sort of mathematical puzzles yeah Exactly. So when that voice is coming up a lot, then he the, the my clients start making the sudokus and the voices is making giving the answers and he can watch a television program. Of course I do that. But when it gets too fast, too hard in in the sense of um that I see that my client is getting really distracted by the voices, then sometimes I say I don't care at this moment if you don't want to talk with them, but I do need to talk with them because they've got something to tell. And then every time my client says after it can be a session of just 5 minutes and every time my client says I feel relief now. So it could be a situation where the person is in crisis or there's violence or something that's happening and you will really encourage or even insist that look we really I really need to talk to your voice right now because something is going on here. Yes. because i know the voices want to be heard if they didn't want to be heard you wouldn't hear them 
what about that professional belief that, look, this is just going to make things worse and actually you shouldn't talk to these voices because it's just going to stir the, stir the person up, even if the client wants to talk about the voices, even if the client is, is cooperating with you and it's their decision. What would you say to a professional that feels very, very cautious and very much like, no, 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 this is not a good approach? Well, what I do is say, well, without talking with the voices, they had some criminal acts. So it can't never get worse. So other things have been tried and the problem is still there. So let's try a different approach. Let's try, exactly. Because the medication didn't work. Nothing worked. And one of my clients, um, what I talked to you about, and which, uh, from whom I, which I spoke already in a Congress, um, since the day I met him, and it's not because of me, but it's because of my approach. Of course, there is a part of trust. I know that. But um, he never was violent anymore in one and a half year. Once you started speaking with him, with his voices and, and working with him. He was not allowed to go to the Congress of Hearing Voices because uh, the people who were above me, my managers, thought he could not handle it. And the day after, he went there because he had a very violent voice. And he has asked during the Congress by me, by my, by my approach, by the, the, the sorry, what, 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 what I said, my speech, his question was, how can this voice be less violent, get better ideas? And it was the idea of his voices to go and meet people who heard voices. So that was his, his interest in coming to the Congress, but he was blocked by the people who were Yes. managing you and making the decision for him because they were and then his voices talked with him and he talked with his voices without me which was great and his voices said okay maybe we can get a penalty by going there because he is in a closed forensic setting but we want to pe meet people who hear voices and it was the best day of his life so he did end up coming to the congress yeah and his voices were so happy Maybe it's strange also that it seems like that I'm talking about voices as if they're entities. I don't think that. You feel that they're a part of the person that got broken off in a traumatic, violent experience yes. that they had, like child abuse or bullying. Exactly. Tell us uh, more about this incredible story of the young man, Justin, who's done such wonderful work in his own healing. You say he was in a criminal forensic unit. He had committed some crimes. Tell us about his history of violence and what he came came from when you, when you met him. Um, well, his history of crime was attacking people with knives, trying to kill people with knives and, and uh, shovels. And uh, uh, he was, uh, when I met him, when I heard about him, uh, a very violent, dangerous um, boy, uh, manipulative um not being able for for a reason to talk about things so i thought when this boy was coming when i heard that from my colleagues my god i'm going to meet the worst man in life he was a teenager when he committed these acts of violence when i met him he was 22 but those crimes started when he was seven, 16, 17. So this is sort of the worst of the worst. This is someone who's actually assaulted people with knives and shovels and is hearing voices. And so this person is locked up. And I imagine he was pretty heavily medicated when you, when you first met him. Is that right? 
Well, nobody knew he was hearing voices. They said he had autism and was aggressive and um, a psychopath. So he had not been recognized as having mental health problems. He was just seen as a violent criminal. Is that right? A violent criminal with a learning disability. So because of his low IQ, he was in a mental health um, learning disability facility. Yes, but in a closed forensic setting because of, of the crimes he committed. Were these crimes against his family members or friends, or were these strangers that he attacked? Or Many people might maybe laugh when I say that, no, it was always against caretakers. So against psychiatrists, uh, psychologists... Uh, nurses, never to his family. So this is someone who is the target of his violence is people who work in mental health. Well, and I found out how that came when I started talking with his voices. And he has one very smart voice. Peter is a very smart man, speaks English, though my client can't speak English, reads English, though my client can't read English. Don't ask me how that's possible, but I've seen it. And that client, uh, that that voice, is rejecting against the way my client was being treated. So when he was receiving care around his learning disabilities, that's when these violent acts happened against the caretakers in that institution. Yes. And yes. So, and so you met him, and he was you were sort of afraid because this is the worst of the worst. This is a very violent. <laughs> first, did you feel personally in danger? I mean, you must have felt very anxious when you went into the first meeting with him. Well, maybe that's strange because I, I before I met him, I had done this job about sixteen years, and I never have been in a violent situation with one of my clients. So when I heard my colleagues talk about this boy, I thought, okay, this is going to be the worst person I will ever met in my job. But my, my colleagues, some of my colleagues have been attacked by him. So I thought, and I said to my colleagues, okay, I'll pick him up. I'm the only one who doesn't have a past with him. Maybe that can be a new opening. So no, I was not afraid. I was just, I must say, very curious because I thought nobody can be that bad. So you already had a lot of experience in working with pretty violent uh, people at this point. Yeah, I did work in a, in a, in a, in a forensic uh, setting many years also, in a, in a forensic setting for, I mean, the real heavy persons, not with a learning disability. So when you, when you met him, what was it that you did differently that didn't provoke him? Because it sounds like there was a danger that just like other mental health professionals that he might have attacked you. How did you deal with him differently? Did you show him that you were more open to his voices and that you were a different kind of uh, practitioner? Well, maybe it sounds strange, but I knew he loved music and and that might sound familiar for all of you. I have always seen that people who hear voices have a lot with music. And I used to work in Portugal and I sang there in a Brazilian band. So when I met him and he was taking his CDs out of a car, I said, oh, you love music. I said, oh, I sang in a Portuguese band. Do you know some Portuguese and Brazilian music? Because I needed a connection with him. So you really made that human connection right at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And then how did it proceed? How did you actually start to work with him on his voices and what happened? Well, that was the first night when I went out walking with him that I had seen him about 12 hours and that I already had said to my colleagues, I'm really sorry, but I think this boy is hallucinating. And then he was a little bit 
during dinner with other clients, uh, talking and, and, and saying things that I thought, this is not right. And I said to him, hey, I don't know you so well, but I have half an hour off later. Will we go for a walk? And he said, yes, I love to. And then, well, then what I said already before, I went walking with him and I said, I think, I hope you don't mind that I'm saying it, but I know you hear things that I don't hear. And then he first said, I don't want to talk about it. I said, to me, no problem. I said, but I know because of what you're hearing, you got into trouble. And then he said, I hear two voices immediately. And no one had ever asked him about that before. No one had ever asked him. And then we found out he had tried to tell this before and no one took it seriously. And and so you made a connection with him right right away. And then what happened? Did you start doing regular meetings with him and how did the work progress? Well, uh, of course I trained him because um, I didn't want him to be uh, liable on me. He had to, to, to train some things too when I was not working because I, I, I told him also, well, it's great that you want to talk with me about it, but what are you going to do when I'm sick or what, when I'm on a holiday or what when I leave? And so I learned him what he can do himself. And, and there are little tricks. And maybe, maybe because of this boy has a learning disability and he's been in institutes for many years that he trusted so much on what your uh, psychologists say and what your caretakers say that he's used to do what people tell him. But he was a perfect example. And then, like, like, then he said, yeah, but I got angry and I said, okay, but listen. What can you do? Yeah, I can talk with Peter. Yes, Peter is one of his voices. So he gave the voices different names and he had two, you said. Yeah. And all the voices. I don't know if any one of you is familiar with the Maastricht interview. Maastricht, you know, that is... that is. This was developed by Sandra Escher and Marius Rome to how to work with people with voices. And you don't have to do the whole interview, but... Um, it's like, for example, what I do, what I did with Justin and I do with other clients too, is that sometimes I walked into their room without knocking, without present myself and just saying, jump through the window. And then they looked at me and they said, what the hell are you saying? And I said, well, you could say the same to your voices. Ask who they are and what they want and why they are there. Because if you think about it, if someone came into your room and said, oh, kill yourself or go kill your therapist, you would just say what? And you would interact with them. And so you're sort of illustrating that by, by acting out, sort of role-playing with the voices as a way of teaching the person to actually have a relationship with the voice. Exactly. So he must have been really scared. He must have been very reluctant to talk about his voice, that he had never done this before, but you educated him that actually he could have a relationship with the voices and interact with them like they were having, like he was having a conversation with someone else. Yeah, and you must not forget, Will, that the voices are listening. I mean, if people are now listening to our conversation and they hear voices, I'm sure that a lot of their voices are listening too, and they have an opinion. So it's about asking what the opinion is and starting a dialogue and getting getting out of this just deadlock of not listening to the voices and then pushing them away and denying yes. that you're having this experience. Because like you said, the voices want to be heard. That's the most important message here, I guess. If they were not 
they didn't want to be hurt. They were not there. It's like a little child. I can say to my stepson, once, okay, not now. And I can say it three times, but then I have to make with him a deal. Okay, Erica is going to do this, and after that I have time for you. Otherwise, it will be a boring little child, yanging, yanging, nagging, 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 and voices are like that too. I'm not saying that the voices are like childs, but their behavior is sometimes like a child. I want to be heard. I'm important. Listen to me. I got something to tell. If you are just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Erica von den Acker from the Netherlands. She is a social psychiatric caretaker who works in forensic and criminal psychiatric settings, and she works with people who hear violent voices and voices that are involved in criminal behavior. Are the voices really in pain from the trauma? Is that where this desperation and urgency comes from? In my opinion, some voices are, but most voices, and of course, those are the voices in my job we hear the most about, are angry. And they want to stand up for my client, but they don't know how to do that because they have, in general, not had the education to find the right words. Like, for example, a therapy did a Carstens, my, my friend and ex-colleague, also from, from the Intervoice movement in the Netherlands, um, had um, a talk with one of his, his clients, and she's a friend of mine, but that voice was saying, kill you, kill you, kill you. And after some uh, sessions, we found out that the voice was saying, hey girl, the way you're living now, you could kill yourself. This is no life. Change for the better. But the voice didn't know the words. So the voice that was telling the client to kill themselves is actually trying to protect the client's best interest in a sense because it's saying, look, the way you're living now isn't right. Do something do different. Do something different. But all it could say was just kill yourself because that was sort of the feeling of needing to change. Like we say to some of our friends, well, f*** off. For example, Will, I met in a congress in Berlin. That was also very interesting. It's a um, triangle congress where people who hear voices and their family and caretakers talk together. This is the trialogue approach, I guess. Yeah, tri dialogue. That's what I meant. Thank you. And I met there a man and I saw him just and I thought, he wants to talk with me. And two days later, I talked with him. He said, How did you know that? I said, I knew by your face that like your voices were saying, We want to talk to that woman. And if you care for a person, you can see what is going on. I mean, hell, my husband comes home and I see what's going on and he will always say nothing. So I'm just mentioning what I think that is going on. That's much easier. But we don't ask each other questions in healthcare. We are afraid to ask about what happened to you. And I think that's the biggest issue why mental health care is no care anymore. We don't want to ask the right questions because we're afraid that maybe some trauma will come up and then we have to deal with that. 
professionals feel very protective and they feel very cautious and they don't want to be responsible for making things worse or for getting into any kind of problem. So there's a very conservative kind of atmosphere. I've seen this a lot. And then people just end up being very distanced, like there's no actual human interaction and engagement. You mentioned with Justin that he had a he has a learning disability. Can you just say a little bit about what that means? Because it, it sometimes has a different connotation in the United States. That just means that he was scoring low on, on IQ tests. Is that right? Yes. Yes. He was scoring low on IQ tests, um, 85, which is not enough to go to the normal mental health care departments. I'm still trying to find a good psychologist who believes in hearing voices because I believe that when Justin takes another test and he is allowed to ask the help of his voices that he will get a higher IQ. Yeah, you mentioned that one of the voices actually could read and speak uh, English, which is really remarkable. How is this related to the idea of multiple personalities? It sounds like um, there's some overlap here with the idea of dissociative identity disorder and voices and schizophrenia and multiple personalities. I mean, not to get too much into the categories and labels, but I think a lot of folks listening are going to be thinking, well, this is a, someone who has different sub-personalities or different kind of split-off parts of themselves. Is that really often what is going on? With How do we diagnose is there really, I mean, schizophrenia, you know, in Japan and Korea, we don't use the word anymore. Since the 3rd of October, we don't use the word anymore in the Netherlands. I mean, the people who really want to, it's stigmatizing. It, does it help if I say that it is more a multiple, dis, uh, a, a, a multiple personality disorder? Does it help when I say it goes more to schizophrenia? I think that is what what um, makes me so angry when I talk with doctors and psychiatrists, some doctors and psychiatrists. We are people and um, some of us are triangles, some of us are rectangles and, and we can't, can't fit in one profile. So diagnosis I just use by, okay, talk with my clients, we think it's this, and then this of this therapy could work together with that or that medication. Do you agree? Then we'll try it for three weeks and then two weeks more and after three months we have a real evaluation and then we stop it and we try something else. But most psychiatrists go on and on for years and years and they don't talk to their client anymore. So when it comes to your real question, is it maybe crossing, you know yourself, I hope that that's, um, we are trying to get even out of DSM-4, eh, the, 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 the diagnostic uh, manual of, of mental disorders, to get the word disorders out. So talking about diagnosis, I think let's say, I don't care. Maybe my client would say, yeah, it's more multiple personality disorder. If he agrees with it, perfect. But my most important concern is that what we do together with him works for him. Yeah, because when you're describing your work with Justin, it's really just about the relationship with him and what category or what label you want to put on it. I mean, he's experiencing these voices as something that's separate from him and something that he can dialogue with and have a conversation with. And that's meaningful and that's actually helping him to to change and so that's the important thing that it's actually effective and 
and practical. Uh, Erica, what kinds of things did his, his voices say? So were his voices responsible for these assaults on um, the professionals and nurses and caretakers? What kinds of things did his voices start to tell you when you were able to begin to, to communicate with them? Well, well, first, what I always say to, I did say that to Jessica, but I say to all my clients, the voices are never responsible for the actions. My clients are. It's their hands. It's them who are responsible. Because that's what I said. If I walk into a room and tell him to kill my colleague, he's still responsible. So the responsibility is always my client. But the acts, the criminal acts, came out of orders of what the voices said. In all the times, and also with more clients, like um, uh, getting uh, 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 rob a, a gas station to get money, um, uh, be violent to 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 other persons, yell at persons, uh, refuse. The small things are, for example, refusing things in my setting, like, no, I don't want to go to my room, or I want don't want to go to bed, or I want to go out now, things like that. So it's always the voices who gave my clients orders. And it was that bad with Justin, but also with some other clients, that it was like, if you don't hit Erica, then I'll kill your mother. So when you were working with Justin, he had voices that were telling him to attack you and to be violent yeah. towards you. I once came into his room and I heard already from my colleagues that he had been bad two days. I had been two days off and I came and I saw him and I saw violence in his and an anger, but also distraction in his eyes. And I said, what are your voices telling you? And he said, Erica, I'm afraid. And I said, come here. And I gave him a hug. And then he was smiling and he said, my voices are saying, this is much more fun than hitting Erica. Wow. That's amazing. It was for me, wow, too, because it could have been something else. But I trust my clients and they trust me. So it's, it's, we have to meet each other halfway. When you were working with Justin, did he become violent at any point? Were there times when the vo voices sort of um, were exerting too much of an influence and he ended up uh, acting out on the voices? Never violent to other people. He, um, in the one and a half year now that I've been working with him, he threw twice a stone through the window of an old building. He was w living on an old institute department in the Netherlands and he was walking with one of my colleagues and he said he had to pee and he went behind a building and he took a stone and w threw that through a window. He once designed um, a swastika on a mirror he once, and I still have to laugh about that, <laughs> he uh, took the um, uh, cable out of the um, system that can hear him at night. And unfortunately, three times he automutilated. But he was never violent to anyone else, not even verbal violence. So that you mean he cut himself or he... Swastikas in his arm. Overall, is how is he doing? Is he improving? It sounds like he's doing better and is his condition kind of... Is he having less trouble with the voices and is he feeling like he's more capable of moving towards independence and no longer being in the system, do you think? Well, the good thing is that um, when I was at a congress where he was not allowed to go, that um, the day before I spoke to him and I spoke with his voices and his most violent voice, that Peter, 
had a question for me too, which I should ask, and you might have heard that during the Congress, like how could he be less violent and improve himself to help, really help Justin? And then I got some reactions during the Congress. So his voice, Peter, actually had a question for how do you, how can you help me here? How can I be less violent? Yes. And then you yes. asked, I remember you asked that at the Congress and people at the Congress gave suggestions. It's really an amazingly creative um, approach yeah. that the voice took. Hey, you're going to this uh, Congress. Let me ask the people at the Congress for some help and ideas here. Yeah. And then when I came home at night from the Congress, I wrote that email with the suggestions people gave me because there were a lot of people who hear voices and you know all better than I do. And then the next morning, uh, Justin and his voices decided to go to the meeting in Falkenburg in the Netherlands. And that was a very positive reaction of the voice. He was not saying, let's kill managers because we couldn't go to the Congress. He said, let's go to the meeting and let's be constructive and still that voice has problems but Justin knows how to talk with it and um, yeah it, I must say he learned a lot he has been separated twice because you know about my history now there working with Justin because it wasn't approved that I work with the voices and I will go um, to court about that in uh, January. So you ended up losing your job as a result of this innovative work with Justin. Were the other professionals there threatened by the fact that you were taking such a different approach? Yes, but the funny thing is that yesterday I heard that the people who fired wanted to fire me got fired themselves, so I'm really wondering what's happening now. <laughs> So, so there might be some sort of political struggle going on behind the scenes there. Erica, I know you've been working with many people who hear violent voices and have committed violent acts over many years. And are there other um, stories that you'd like to tell us, other success stories, other examples of the eff effectiveness of the approach of actually talking with the voices and trying to understand them? Well, well, first, maybe I want to say something. Uh, a few months ago, um, I saw the news and there was... Um, in Belgium, which is close to me, of course, I live in the south of the Netherlands, a young boy um, schminked, um, uh, dressed up like uh, the Joker of Batman, and he killed two children and a caretaker in um, a school for young children. And when I heard that, I said, that boy is hearing voices. Let's first not see a crime as it's a bad person. Most of the time, all those crimes that we really don't understand when it's not about money or not about drugs or not about passion, it's mostly voices. And if we go on denying that there is an existence of voices and if we go on denying that voices might be related to traumas, then I think we will have much more of those news items the next decades. That's the first thing I wanted to say. And um, I've worked in a, in a forensic setting, um, which, well, I, I've worked with people, I think in America, they would be on that row. So these are murderers and people who've been convicted of very serious crimes. Viola, uh, violators, how do you call it? Who raped women. Rapists and child, people who've killed children and... The worst. What I see from the United States, what gets on death row, it's what I work with or worked with. 
what what I, I of, of, of course we're all human even the, the the worst ones that they said Erica when I come out I want to go out once with you and and give you a dinner and then I said to him I remember one man and I said if you come out I hope I'll be dead and he said why and I said listen what you have done is already very bad but the fact that you're already 12 years in prison and now five years in a psychiatric forensic clinic and you still don't talk about what you did and why you did it then i don't want you to come out and then he started talking he's still in there but it doesn't matter because if it, we don't have self-reflection then then no one of us can can get out in the real world anymore and uh, yes i've worked but a, a lot of them uh, are traumatized yeah, the research really shows that people who go on to become murderers uh, are really themselves have experienced terrible child abuse and incredibly violent um, family childhoods, and that plays a central role in what it is that turns someone into someone who's violent. Of course, I do care about what happened to them. But what I said before, too, about when it's hearing voices or when it's a trauma, you're still responsible for what you do yourself. Like when I met Justin... I knew he had been many times violent and I said to him, I said, listen, I've done this job 16 years. I have never had a violent situation with one of my clients and you are not going to be number one. And that's clear. I don't accept violence. No way. Also not if you hear voices. They can knock on my door of my office. They can call me. They can talk to me or my colleagues. I don't accept violence. So this is not about making an excuse or, or no. taking the responsibility off of someone just because they hear no. voices, but it's pointing out that they are responsible for their actions. But at the same time, let's talk with you about what's going on in your experience rather than just seeing you as a bad person or a psychopath or someone who's genetically predisposed to mental illness and therefore you're going to have these psychotic things that lead you to commit violent acts. And Exactly, exactly. Because I, I, I get angry sometimes too, but I never reach to violence. I mean, the worst thing I do when I get angry is maybe throw my glass of Coke here through the house and there it stops. And then I have to clean the mess myself, if you know what I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah, the violence, I don't accept that, but I want to understand. And that's what I say to my clients. Talk to me about how it is possible that you got that violent. I even have uh, one of my best friends is one of my ex-clients from the forensic clinic. And I'm going next week with him to, um, oh, I don't know how, how that's called, when you're out of prison after many years, then you still have those connections with the police and then you have to, and, and they know that me and my husband are his friends trying to give his social life. And he's a nice human being. Okay, we can call him a murderer, but that was. Maybe I'll be once a murderer. You never know. Erica, we have just about run out of time on this really fascinating interview. Can you give us contact information? People want to get in touch with you, and also if they want to get in touch with the International Hearing Voices Network? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the, the uh, International Community for Hearing Voices, that is um, www.intervoiceonline.org. And your email address is alpuvar1 at hotmail.com, which is spelled A-L-P-O-U-V-A-R and then the number one 
at hotmail.com. Erica Vonden Acker, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you very much for inviting me. And it was uh, for me a, a pleasure to talk about my concerns. You've been listening to an interview with Erica Vanden Acker. She is a social psychiatric caretaker in the Netherlands. She is a member of the Hearing Voices Network and works with forensic criminal psychiatric settings. That is all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.